0: Happy New Year and welcome to Desenio's review of the 2010s. My name is Ollie Stratford, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Desenio and today I'm going to be leading a discussion looking at the last 10 years in design. We're going to sift through a couple of developments in the discipline and phenomena, not necessarily the most important and it's certainly not exhaustive, but just a few things that have changed over the preceding 10 years that are worthy of note and discussion. To help me in this task, I'm joined by two colleagues.
1: Hello, I'm Johanna Argoven-Ross and I founded Designio. And I'm Christina Robatsky. I'm the deputy editor of Designio.
0: So maybe to kick us off, we should start at the beginning. Johanna, you founded Designio in the first part of the decade, 2011. What did design look like at that time? I appreciate that's a broad question, but maybe you can give us a little bit a uh, lay of the land.
2: So, all it sounds stupidly obvious, it was just off the back of the 2000s. And why that's significant is because in the early part of the 21st century, I think design saw a very big push in terms of uh, the media that existed around it, the number of people that worked in that field. Um, it became ever popular as a degree. Uh, it became a asset occupation um, but then came 2008 and the financial crash and I think that in 2011 we still saw the aftermath of that so you had a decrease in building you had a decrease and in, in manufacturing and you had less jobs um, and you had less opportunities in the field so I think that 2011 was at the cusp of something starting to happen and something starting to look a little bit different again.
0: Is there a change in the role of the designer? Because I suppose, traditionally anyway, a designer is someone involved in production and consumption. It's typically creating objects for the market. Um, This decade, I think it's become more and more apparent that we have problems with overconsumption. We need to consume less. We need to produce less. Does that drive a change in how... um, designers see themselves or what their role is, or is is there an anxiety around that role of the designer being seen as someone who is complicit within that production and consumption cycle?
2: Well, I think this comes very much from the history of industrial design. You know, we are in the first century where the industrial designer actually faces these issues properly. I think that in the 20th century, the designer was complicit with the industry because that was the role of the designer the designer was there to add value to companies was there to produce products for industries for example that post-war all of a sudden needed things to design and sell so
1: there was also this enormous belief in uh, designing your way into a more equal society where people could afford everyday items like uh, the Alm school and max bill you know had a a very progressive idea of what these these products uh, could do for people exactly and i think that in the
2: 21st century it's the first time that designers are faced with the issues that this prior role put them in in a way so they all of a sudden now are faced with mass production overconsumption we need to produce less we need to consume less so the role of the designer therefore changes.
1: Many designers that I speak to today, uh, you do get a sense of a kind of a very strong sense of ambivalence in them uh, about what they do and if they can find ways around the uh, established models of production. Either by creating a small sort of on-demand production studio that uh, where they kind of maybe complement that type of work with consultancy, and so they're not contributing to you know churning out masses of useless products, but uh, but producing on demand, and also young designers who are working with things like uh, offcuts and uh, having using that as a sort of um, as a design principle that they don't budge on so like they won't use any new materials like there's um malmo upcycling service as a collective of um young swedish designers who only use offcuts uh, and waste materials from the um from the factories in southern sweden where uh, they're based in malmo uh, or two of the designers at Design Parade that I spoke to earlier in 2019 who are using aluminium offcuts from, again, a local manufacturer. Like, these are all ways in which it seems that young designers are kind of negotiating uh, this quite th- thorny position in which they find themselves. And, I mean, we've
2: done a feature quite recently of um, F- Fernando Lepos and his initiative Totem Oxel, which I think is... Again, along those lines, it's actually not just looking at the role of giving form to a project, but uh, in his case, it's looking to work with local farming communities in rural Mexico, uh, reintroducing new types, well, rather old types of corn that is not really any longer economically viable for farmers to grow, but he incentivizes them to grow a much broader and diverse crop in order to then use some of the, not offcuts, but some of the um, the residues of harvest to create quite beautiful and intricate wood veneers or corn husk veneers. So it's sort of saying you get on the one hand um, a food product and from that you also can produce something that adds value to the material that otherwise would just have been thrown away and discarded. So I think that that's very interesting that we have um, a lot of designers that they put themselves in the bigger picture. As you said before, Oli, they're not just responding to a manufacturer's need, but they actually think of the full structure and the full system that they exist within. (laughs)
1: i think that uh maybe if we were to look at th- some of the new areas that opened up to design the well the iphone launched in 2007 so not technically in the tens but uh the arrival of the smartphone at the end of the naughties. noughties the, the yeah. zeros, the zeros. <laughs> so yes even though it didn't launch technically in the tens um the the smartphone its real impact on the way that we um that we live, that we travel, that we navigate and negotiate cities, the way we work, app-based labor um, and the gig economy. Like all of these things came out of this particular piece of product design. Uh, and also it opened up new new areas of graphic and interface design uh, that are really interesting. And that's something that we've been writing more and more about in Desenio, uh as the decade has come along.
0: It- I think, I think it would be hard to argue it's not the most significant typology of the 2010s, probably, if you're looking at its general influence. Everyone has one, and I, I think it has changed a lot the role of the designer. As, as devices, they've been extraordinary acts of condensing down so many different typologies and objects into a single casing. So what a smartphone, it's an A to Z, it provides your maps, it's also the way you access information it stores all of your music, it's your main form of contact, Um, suddenly you have so much within a single object. And I think that probably leads to the growing importance of interface design. If everything is contained within one object, then the way in which you navigate that object, the way in which you access those different functions... Becomes the vital thing, right?
1: So you start getting these design strategies with interface design to do with nudging, to do with uh, what's called the choice architecture in interface design, sort of what choices you're given within an app uh, and at what point. Uh, And these are all things that shape our interaction with the apps, but that have kind of crept in slowly.
0: So stuff like... Tinder, normally sort of feeling attraction to someone or romance in any way is quite complicated, and you have a huge number of options, whereas within that app, the architecture is set up such that it's either fanciable or not fanciable. Mm. Like it's this extreme I guess it is a simplification. It makes everything very direct. It sort of restricts your options in one sense.
1: The other thing it does is that it uh, kind of foregrounds the sense of vision more than any other of your senses. Uh, I mean, this is true of all screen-based technology. I suppose the smartphone has become this incredibly powerful tool and that has changed and uh, made our lives more streamlined in many ways. But then I think something that's become very obvious in the tens, especially towards the end of the tens, is the kind of financial model on which this uh, this technology works and even though it's used almost like a public amenity and many things like many public services you like you were setting out you you, you simply need this this uh piece this product in order to access them then it, it these are products that are produced and owned and have proprietary software that belongs to companies And of course, they need to make money.
0: Well, you touch upon that the smartphone has become an essential piece of kit for interaction with society that you can't get away with it in the same way in which search engines have, for instance. So Google is a company, but it's now also a verb and there's no alternative. You cannot move through society without using Google or, well, you can, but at great pains. It's hardly natural. And we haven't really had as a society any point to have these discussions as to what to think of that that essential utilities are now in the control of these tech corporations now maybe that's fine maybe it's fine that google control the way we access information maybe it's fine apple samsung whatever control all our day-to-day direct interaction with each other
1: the facebook and twitter controls the- our elections <laughs> um,
0: but yeah it's maybe something where as a society we ought to reflect on that because it's not a given there would be alternative ways to arrange that
1: the second half of the decades saw a A shift there in in how we talk about these companies and how we think of them. Um, Mark Zuckerberg appearing in Congress uh, played a big role in that. There was also, I think this was last year, right? Or possibly 2018 when the co-founder of Facebook wrote that uh, explosive op-ed in the New York Times about uh, breaking up uh, Facebook's monopoly. Uh, so splitting it into smaller companies. This has kind of come more and more to the fore. And in terms of design, it's also interesting to see that in the United States, there's currently two bills uh, in that are being reviewed in the Senate. Uh, one is called the Detour Act, and the other one's called something else to do with um, persuasive design. And these are Republican and Democrat coming together to try to legislate around design of these interfaces and the ways in which they are manipulative, addictive, make us buy things that we don't want, so-called dark patterns in, in the kind of interface design language.
0: I think it's difficult to ignore though, even for Republican senators, what the nature of technology and the way you design with it is. So Apple when it becomes this sort of figurehead for design and technology, a lot of that's based on the hardware design they have. So Johnny Ive and his team seen as putting together these terribly desirable, minimalist, sleek, beautiful products. And towards the second half of the 2010s, Apple, I think, does less hardware. It still produces a lot, but the designs, there may be more slight updates and tweaks upon existing models. And Apple's newer output is much more focused around things like service design and content creation. So they put a lot of work into their music platforms. They launch Apple TV and are producing television and film. And so when even this sort of bastion of design technology technology, Apple is maybe a bit less focused on products and objects, and is more interested in this data side and service. I think that's a clear sign of where things are going.
2: It's also interesting, you mentioned Jonathan Ive there, he obviously stepped down from his role as head of the design team uh, from Apple in 2019. And I think that is very telling when he started releasing the new designs for Apple laptop computers uh, and desktop computers in the late 1990s and early 2000s that really set a new tone for how the shells of these products look. And it became the, the, the goal for most technology brands to aim for. And I think that it's interesting that you say that Apple potentially have in some ways reached a peak in terms of its external form and now it's
1: really looking inwards these very powerful tools that we've been given to play with are, are not 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 on our side necessarily and in fact that it's in their interest the the makers of these products and platforms to keep us on them for as long as possible and they're i mean this is where it becomes interesting from a design point of view because there are lots of design strategies both in the interface design to keep you on there for as long as possible but also in the algorithms the type of uh, content that gets uh shared on your timeline is uh is often designed to 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 rile you up basically to keep you on there and keep you engaging for as long as possible because the click is the unit of attention and that is what, say, Facebook or Twitter can give to their advertisers to show that you, you've interacted. So uh, I feel like the 2020s, we're all going to stop doing social media, maybe. <laughs> and my theory is maybe we'll start doing newsletters instead because they're, they're really nice. Like It's really nice to receive a well-crafted uh, newsletter. I'm not sure if I agree. No I think it would be really fun to make one as well so instead of like posting on your Instagram then like once a week or once a month depending on how creative you're feeling you can put together a newsletter for the friends that are interested in hearing news from you you can put pictures in there and recommendations music and books that you've read and stuff like that. I we really
2: do one for senior, anyway, don't we?
0: we do uh it has no recommendations for books or music it's quite an impoverished newsletter compared to um the bold future christina set out
1: but maybe that should be our new year's resolution as a magazine is to uh revamp our newsletter more
2: newsletters less
1: social media
0: and podcasts more podcasts
1: i'm, I'm, I'm pro <laughs> So, Johanna, you had this idea about the role of the star architect in the 2010s. Mm. The star architect being, of course, this portmanteau of star architect, become part of common parlance in the in the last decade.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because, I, I mean, I I don't necessarily know if we can call it the death of the star architect, but it, it struck me that in 2010, Sahadid Architects won uh, the starting prize for Maxi in Rome, the modern and contemporary art museum. Which was a very grand and quite extraordinary building, which was all focused around the kind of architectural promenade where gallery followed gallery um, and a walkway connected them all. And it was very much about the expression of Saadid as an architect. Whereas in 2019, um, Michael Riches and Kathy C- uh, Hawley won uh, the same prize uh, for their Goldsmith Street, which is a social housing project outside of Norwich. And you couldn't really get more different than uh, these two. And I'm not saying that it's gone from one one aspect to the other, but it still reveals a little bit about the trajectory of architecture in the 2010s. And I think what we now appreciate and value within architecture versus what maybe was, was covered and discussed and revered in 2010, I think that's quite a drastic difference
1: maybe about like 2010 and Maxi winning was almost at the, that's the sort of tail end of the, of the Bilbao effect, you know, this idea of I, the iconic museum building being almost like the pinnacle of architectural expression. And then we have, I think definitely institutionally and in academia, we've moved like far away from, from that sort of thing. But I wonder if like commercially, this architect might still be alive and kicking. like i'm I'm just thinking about, you know Hudson Yards in New York, like Thomas Heatherwick's vessel, even though it's I mean, it's telling that it was widely ridiculed, of course, but um this was this was the um. Uh, the big inst- architectural installation in the uh, the, uh, the new development on Manhattan in New York that opened last year. But yeah, I'm thinking Thomas Heatherwick, big and all their project, Zaha Hadid. I mean, Zaha Hadid passed away in, in 2016, so in the middle of, of the decade. But, but you know, uh, the studio is still going strong and just, you know, uh, the Daching International Airport in beijing just opened uh, at the end of last year so yeah i don't know it feels like almost like the, the grant like the, the big developers are still enamored with the star architect whereas academia is like it, there's almost been a a divergence there quite a quite a stark uh, divergence between what's happening in in institutional architecture and academia and what's happening on the developers drawing board
0: yeah i think the claims of the death of the star architect are somewhat premature i mean if you look at the sterling prize okay in 2019 social housing one as you said in 2018 it was foster and partners with the bloomberg center now if you're talking bloomberg offices or whatever it's called if you're talking about huge grand statement buildings that don't give a toss about context the same names still come up again and again christine you mentioned zaha hadid died um the practice like you said still wins a huge number of commissions foster and partners still a huge number of commissions as organ it's not as if these big boys ever went away really although as you say perhaps there's less critical celebration of them simply if you look at the kind of things that get built we still have a housing crisis in london there's still a lack of affordable housing there's a lack of community spaces and funding for that whereas what you get endlessly are these fairly faceless developments going up um that offer slightly bougie living for yuppies is a very dated phrase but that kind of thing they're Um, back
1: that's our prediction for 2020
0: so maybe maybe the Those huge names aren't so vaunted. But if you're talking about star architecture of these grand statement buildings that largely serve a wealthy class and don't really give a fig about the surrounding city, that I don't know if we've moved beyond.
2: I guess one of my observations around the 2010s was the rise of the Biennale, especially the design Biennale. I think there were also a few architecture Biennales that started in in this decade that have done really well, such as the Chicago one. But for me, what was interesting with this was that there seemed to be a desire to discuss design especially design rather than architecture in a new format, on a new platform. um, I think that we're really used to the format of the design fair where you show new products, but to actually critically engage with design as an academic and intellectual topic is something that I think came to the fore in uh, the 2010s. And I think there were some really good examples and some really bad examples. Um, Don't know, Christine and Oli, you both attended some. What, What do you think?
1: I'm trying to think, because there have been so many in the in the past few years. So, the, I mean, the big one for us where London-based is the London Design Biennale, which uh, is run by the same people who run London Design Festival and kind of latches onto it as well, uh, temporally, I suppose, uh, every two years. Uh, so it sort of extends the entire month of September into a London design um extravaganza.
0: I think as a platform, there's an amazing potential there. I think some of the curators who've worked on these things are super impressive. It's a platform to get design out there and to exhibit some some really worthwhile projects that maybe don't find a natural home on quicker platforms like Dazeen. Um I think the trouble with it sometimes is how do you make How do you make sure a biennale interacts with that wider public and doesn't just become an echo chamber for the industry to show the same projects again and again and to have the same debates? Um, And that's not an easy thing to solve. How do you make sure that one of these biennales feels satisfying for those who already know a huge amount about the discipline, but also accessible and inspiring for people who perhaps haven't come across architecture and design before and also how do you manage this idea of legacy are these biennales just there for a month and to start conversations during that period are they meant to launch projects which have a much longer lifespan um i don't think there are easy solutions to those necessarily um but they're, they're worth having and it probably should be part of planning these biennales to have an answer to that is what you want that biennale to do.
1: I think that the Fiskars Design and Art Biennale that you went to, Johanna, also uh, engaged with the location it's set in in a in a sensitive way. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I think they did a really good job um, of
2: doing that. I think that it's also worthwhile saying that a lot of these biennales that we talk about, uh, like the Fiskars one or Design March, which is obviously more of an annual event, uh, they build themselves as not for profit, whereas, for example, the um, Design Biennale builds itself as a for profit event. And I think that this is a quite big difference between them. I think that Biennales and Design extravagances, as we called it, that are not there to kind of make money, but to put something into the community and discuss design on a different level where it can actually benefit uh, the wider world. Um, It's very interesting, I think, and Fiskars did that really well, whereby there is a quite big creative community in Fiskars, a a collective of um, artists, designers and makers that got to show their projects within this context, which was curated by Anina Koivu, who's um, a Finnish uh, by origin uh, curator, but now lives uh, between Italy and Switzerland. So offered a kind of another perspective on this small locality, which is a very um, uh, historically important site um, um, for uh, pr- producing uh, works in iron um, uh, from the 18th century onwards. Um, I was just going to say also, uh, Mario Jana Pastana's uh, curation of the 2020 Istanbul Design Biennale, I think, definitely looks at connecting much more with the community in which it's um, set, uh, which is, of course, Istanbul. Um, and I think that that promises to. Maybe do something a little bit different there, where it's not just about bringing people into the Biennale for the opening um, weekend and then kind of let go of it, but actually it's about building momentum within the city itself, which I think is very important and vital for all these uh, Biennales to consider.
1: I think that's something something important to bear in mind with uh, a format like the London Design Biennial which is a for-profit, as you say, is that it follows the traditional Biennale format, which, if you go back to the Venice Biennale, the, the kind of the original Biennale, founded in what the late 19th century, um, has a, it's, a, it's a very particular format where you have national pavilions, uh, which is also, you know, the, the 19th century trade f- fair and world fair format of kind of showing the, you know, showing the industrial prowess of a nation, you know. And it's a it's a it's a format that in the art world, which has its own biennale circuit and triennale and quinquennial circuit in the art world. Critics and theorists uh, have done a lot of work uh, critiquing and uh, perhaps drawing out some of the downsides of that format. Do we really want to present culture as part of national pavilions and presenting nations, or do we, uh, or do we want to think more openly about locality and and place and and that sort of thing? Um, and then the other thing with uh, with that original Biennale format is that exhibitors pay to exhibit uh, and need a whole amount of funding.
2: There were some interesting revelations around that last year. I think that both Artnet and Apollo magazine published quite ins- in- insightful um, reports on the cost of this and who can afford it. And actually, it really shapes what we see in the end, who can pay uh, to be part of it. It's not necessarily as democratic and open as one might be would hope
1: absolutely and it depends a whole lot on what what the ex, uh, individual exhibitor gets in terms of the institutional support and funding from their country whether it's a cu- cultural organis- a big cultural organization with lots of money or an embassy or if it's private bo- you know smaller private bodies there's a, a huge variation in terms of how each pavilion is funded and what it can do but it's presented on the biennale stage let's say as if you're comparing like with like nation with nation and and um and then it's with the london design manual, the the confusion is compounded by the fact that some pavilions are countries and then there's a few pavilions that will be like a city has has decided to buy a pavilion or even a brand has paid to have a pavilion and it's presented in the same way so you're comparing you know <laughs> a country's, supposedly a country's design representatives with a brand. You know, the Biennale also has, um, and this is not just the London Design Biennale, of course, this is a, a case with with any event like this, but they will have specific contractors that the exhibitors have to work with, uh, whether that's, you know... Uh, carpentry or whatever like or printed matter that you're you're very very restricted to working with these specific people and that's also part of the kind of money-making machine of the biennale uh, structure so I was wondering if we could talk about the the past decade and then what what you want to bring with you from the 2010s into the 2020s and what you want to leave behind?
0: Um, I think the thing I would take forward is the appreciation that's emerged for failures within design and the unexpected consequences of design. So I know the MAC in Vienna, in its um, permanent collection of contemporary design, has um, a cabinet devoted to failures and designs which may be succeeded by their own lights, but which had unfortunate consequences. So... I'm trying to think of a good example they have. Um, so, oh, so they have a chair. I've forgotten the name of the designer that's very interesting. It's made from just sort of lots and lots of old fabrics all lashed together. Uh, and it's it's a really interesting piece, but it's impossible to ship because it's so heavy. So that that's quite a whimsical example, but there are other more serious ones. And I think that's quite a good step to come to the appreciation that design bills itself as a problem solving discipline. um, But it depends how you define those problems, what's being solved by design, and whether it generates other problems. Um, And Daisy Ginsburg, the designer is quite strong on that. And her PhD work she did around the ideas of better and defining better for whom and better in what way. Uh, So I think that's been a positive development. And it would be good to see more of that
2: something I'd like to bring with me and I don't want to sound too worthy but I do think that the issues of diversity has been really at the forefront uh, of the 2010s where we have maybe for the first time in in kind of in practice recognized that the design and architecture profession uh, as well as the field of fashion and style is quite uh, dominated by um white
0: and uh, uh,
1: people like us. White, middle <laughs> class, northern European.
0: Yeah. Satan so ourselves for recording our podcast. <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, yeah. Let's like talk I, about this.
2: Let's talk about this. Giving our hot yeah. <laughs> but I think there's been some really positive uh movements to kind of highlight that. But also, you know, not just um not just from point of view of saying we need to be more inclusive, we need to consider people of different abilities, we need to uh, consider uh, that that the design field doesn't really necessarily represent um, who it tries to appeal to, that we need to consider that diversity. Um, I think that it's been helpfully written about by writers such as Libby Sellers and Alice Rawston. So basically with that, I was going to say, I think that as well as recognizing that failure is something that exists in design, our failure to to Include a diverse number of people and a, a, a large number of people within the field is a failure that we now have now recognized, but that I hope that in the 2020s we'll see us fixing to a bigger degree than what we've done to date.
1: Yeah, I, I I hope for the same, but then at the same time I think I'm a bit worried about where this will go in the 2020s because if if the 2010s were a decade when uh, when these really really pressing issues around diversity um and uh identity politics came to the fore in the popular imagination and and, and debate um then i think that the 2010s were also the decade when they especially towards the end of it when when those same issues got kind of co-opted by uh, uh by by advertising and brands such that um when i see a uh, uh, a woke hashtag you know like I I almost immediately think oh it's like that is almost definitely uh, you know H&M or some <laughs> some other such brand kind of uh, trying to sell me something uh, so it's the, the you know the idea of woke washing and um and greenwashing, in particular in the, the design industry I think has, has kind of come hand in hand with these really important topics coming to the fore so I I'm I, I I wonder how that will play out uh, whether that will then create a new space for real activism to happen uh, or if it will actually uh, work against those courses I, I I think it uh,
2: comes up to people like ourselves or a publication like the senior to call those things out as and when appropriate and possible i also think that there are people out there that does that i think that there's a wonderful example um for example the social media handle diet prada that i think does that brilliantly for the fashion industry and i think that does it in an entertaining way where you just go what on earth were they thinking but it becomes um you know a, an important stance but likewise a bit of kind of titillation while you're flicked through your instagram account you know so I yeah. think that i think that i think that there's being aware of it and calling it out i think is the best we can do
1: you mentioned diet prada um and that made me think of well, the thing that i would w- want to take with me and it's maybe not so much uh well, it is and it isn't a design issue. We've actually done a piece, uh, an article in the magazine about um, meme design and meme culture. But I'd like to take uh, internet humour with me into the 2020s. I think it's sort of shown, well, a certain... <laughs> Certain strands of it, anyway, of collective humour that loops back on itself, develops its own whole universes of comedy within within a single meme or a combination of memes. It's this great creative um, comedy project that ha- that happens online and that makes me feel better about social media after a decade, where frankly, social media has shown itself to be. Um, uh to be deeply sinister so the kind of collective creative force of uh of funny people online i'd like to to take with me into the 20s i think this
0: brings us full circle to an extent though and back to that idea of not thinking of a single design as wholly successful or a whole failure that it has different strands so internet humor yes it's been a glorious important shift and there's so much to like about it it also has an incredibly ugly side it's been oh, yeah, the sort sure. of hotbed for a hell of a lot of online bullying uh, misogyny racism pretty much every form of bigotry you can get going and also they do form these very insular little pockets so everyone ends up moving round and round in circles making the same jokes and only speaking to people who already share their opinion so it brings a lot of good but it brings a lot of bad as well Stay tuned to Desenia's podcast channel for more podcasts coming throughout the year. Do visit our website, deseniodaily.com to see events we have coming up and also all of our online content. Thanks for listening.
1: Ollie. you were fiddling with your smartwatch just yes, now.
0: Because I'm a modern creature, a washing technology. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can we not do the smartwatch interest? This episode was produced by Evie Hall, edited by Christina Rapatsky, and with music by Zapspat.